This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 149. My guest is Peter Oliver. Peter is one of the most significant figures in the lithium industry over the last two decades. You may not have heard of Peter before, but that is by his own design. Peter has always kept his profile low even when he was running Talison, he was responsible for the Green Bushes Mine, the most significant lithium hard rock asset in the world. He oversaw the sale of Talison and the Green Bushes asset to Tanchi and then advised Tanchi for the better part of a decade as they were becoming a lithium major. Peter was involved when Rockwood acquired 49% of Talison, as well as when Tanchi acquired a significant stake in SQM. Few in the industry have the type of experience that Peter Oliver has. Without further ado, Peter Oliver. Peter Oliver, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. Hey Joe, um, great to meet you face-to-face after probably nearly 10 years since we last met face-to-face, so yeah, terrific. We'll start out with a brief background. We call it the backstory. Where were you born, raised, educated, and how did you get to the lithium world? Well, definitely um, Perth, born and bred, mining industry background, Traditional as in Western Australia, iron ore, salt, gold even at one stage, and then ended up in Greenbushes really. At, and at that point, 2003, was substantially only a, a tantalum operation. I think the first year I was there, we sold 70,000 tonnes of concentrate, and the bulk of it was going into the glass and ceramics industry. So, very small part of the business. Um, completely different to what it is now. And then obviously ended up being the CEO and we did the listing and in the last, basically last 10 years, had the, um, the great pleasure of working as an advisor for Vivian Wu at, at Tianchi. So it's um, been an interesting time in the lithium space for the last 20 years, as you, you and I both know. Well, let's talk a little bit about those Taliesin years and how the Chinese market evolved on the back of Talison becoming, or Greenbushes becoming, the primary hard rock asset in the world. When did you see the transition start? You're talking about two, 2003, it was 70,000 tons? Yeah, and it was, vast majority of it wasn't even going into chemical manufacture, it was direct application. Look, I mean, yeah, we have to give the Chinese credit. I mean, they were the, the leaders of the industry. They saw the opportunity. They saw that there was 
opportunity to make lithium chemicals and it wasn't just all about brines. It's interesting that, that the lithium industry in China really started from, from the nuclear energy industry and the original plant that I visited in Jingjiang was uh, nestled in amongst a cement factory so that it wouldn't be seen from, from the satellite. So they've had a long history in, in converting spodumene from their own operations into, into lithium chemicals and, and, but their deposits were poor and running out so they saw green bushes as an opportunity. So um, you know, they were ahead of the pack, no question about it and I don't think any of us really understood what they could see much earlier than us. I may be a little fuzzy on the chronology. I moved to China from Japan in 2005, and it seemed like there was an upset to Greenbush's ability to supply. There was a receivership. and Do I have that right, or am I remembering that wrong? Oh, there's a horrible times, Joe. Um, yeah, so when I started in 2003, it was, it was part of Sons of Gualia, which was really a, a gold mining business. It had a small specialty minerals business, which was tantalum, and, and a very small part of that business was lithium. And that went into a receivership based on the hedging book, so, and that was sold out to private equity. And to be honest, the private equity group that bought it, they've openly admit that the only reason they bought it was for the tantalum and the lithium really didn't come into consideration. So um, that's really where it all started. And from that, we took it, eventually we separated the tantalum and the lithium business and then listed the, um, the lithium business as Talisman on, on the TSX. So that's when this thing started to really move. I remember late summer 2005 when I arrived in Shanghai and I had a steady stream of people that had been trying to use your material and they couldn't get it and there was a real panic because this was just as the chemicals business in, in China was growing. And uh, I became very popular for a short period of time because at least I had access to uh, raw material. How was that ship righted? Was that 2006, 2007? Because in the end, it just seemed like you were the dominant and rapidly growing supplier. There weren't that many converters at the time, but it just seemed like uh, all of a sudden you guys were back and everything normalized. Look, we had, well, we had very strong relationships in the Chinese market and, and knew all the people, and as the market was growing, we you know, committed to substantially expanding. And at those, at those times, the, the price in the market really meant the only green bushes was competitive on the concentrate side. So we just continued to rapidly expand uh, production and, and meet that demand. And, you know, it's probably only in the last few years that other deposits have become, become economic as the prices have gone up. It seemed that every calciner in China was tweaked for your material. And when other materials started to be used, there were a lot of there were a lot of perturbations and, and people complaining that this wasn't like your material. Is every hard rock asset different in the extent that the concentrate has different characteristics? We always hear this that every brine asset's different and hard rock's homogeneous, but I've never believed hard rock was homogeneous. What are your thoughts on that? Look, I think this is probably not that well understood. And look, to be honest, Joe, at the current pricing in market, the Chinese converters will make anything work. 
but fundamentally the the other minerals that come with the concentrate are critical the size of the the size distribution is critical so if it's a lot coarser product it's a lot easier to calcine and a lot more suitable if you've got a lot of um, minerals that come in that that will actually melt in the calciner in, in less than a thousand and eighty degrees then you'll end up with literally cannibals coming out their end there's a whole lot of issues that that specific to all bodies and green bushes was very blessed that it was the most suitable but also i guess fundamentally everyone designed around that so as the industry's matured they'll they'll get more capacity to deal with other products i'm sure let's step back to the whole green bushes as an asset story i did a little research and i guess i knew this in the back of my mind but if what i read is correct the first operation was in 1888 most minds don't transcend three different centuries when you think about it but lithium wasn't even on the table until 83 i guess it was how many different products have been pulled out of that resource well yeah it, it is a it is a mine with an enormously long history and, and you're right it's in the 1800s primarily a tin tin operation so it was in fact the um the original tin operation is in the current, was on top of the alluvial product on top of the pit now, and, and that's where the main street was. If you imagine that's they just built the street where they were digging, and they had to bypass the whole town in the future. I probably have the distinction of having one of the few people that that would my wife's parents had their honeymoon in Greenbushes, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, okay, which is an unusual thing. Yeah. But anyway, that was just a little side story that. At that point, tin was obviously a really important mineral. Um, later on, then tantalum became a critical issue. So that, that was a big part of the operation there for, for many years. Um, but it's only really in recent times that anyone found a use for lithium. So that was really, it was always known about, but no one really cared about until, yeah, really the 80s. And, and that was a, a long, hard road to, to making profitability, as I'm sure you're aware. I find it interesting, and I think a lot of the listeners will never have heard this, but as you reference, your first market had nothing to do with battery. And it was ceramics, and it was it was a high-grade product, though, that right now is in short supply, and the the new spodumene mines really have no interest in getting to that level of quality. Why was the Greenbush's mine able to make a, a product that other people don't seem to be able to make? Right now, they don't want to make it because the money's elsewhere, why is Greenbush's head and shoulders above other assets? And that doesn't mean another one won't be discovered at some point. People like to talk about the DRC, but by and large, Greenbush's is Greenbush's and everybody else, everybody else. Yeah, um, I mean, the history of Greenbush's really meant that it was competing with, with SQM and Atacama for, for many years, and, and the pricing meant that on a chemicals basis it was a challenge. But the advantage that Greenbush has had as part of its ore body had very high grade and it was also had very low impurity levels, which meant that we could make really high grade concentrates at you know seven half percent lithium oxide content that had very low impurity. So you could apply it straight into glass manufacture and the iron levels were so low that you could make clean glass without without discoloration. 
So that meant it was a significant cost advantage for the glass manufacturer over, as opposed to they could also use the lithia content for, from, from chemicals. Um, and for, for those that, that want to know that the reason they will use lithium in the glass is because it has a low coefficient of expansion and you can use it for, for ceramics that you want to heat up basically and don't crack. So it was just had a cost advantage of chemicals at the time. It's still a great market, still an interesting application, but struggles to compete these days with the chemical manufacturers. Yeah, if we go back to the corning. That's it. In corning, I grew up right down the road from corning. Uh, and everybody in the United States when I was a kid seemed to have Corningware in their house. The original batch for that was just run of mine from Bikita, as I recall. And then geopolitics being what they are, Corning couldn't didn't have access for time, and they basically had to use carbonate when they really wanted to use an ore with a little bit of lithium, but they didn't like paying the chemical price. So that your story is very concert with the experience I had because Corning just hated buying lithium chemicals. They wanted a, a cruder product that was, was cheaper. Well, essentially they get the silica and the alumina for free. That's why they like <laughs> to do it. They got, the they got the lithium in the batch rather than having to dope the batch with the lithium. Yep, and that yep. was it. Okay. When I first entered China, it seemed that there were only two routes Xinjiang could buy product from you, but you had an exclusive distributor in China. And if I recall, he wound up buying the Shilhong mine, and then he became Tianqi. Yeah. Is that, is, do I have that right? He definitely bought the, the mine, and the history going back beyond that, I, you know, I'm a bit fuzzy on, but you know, he, he definitely definitely got the Shihong mine and, and set up the industry. I mean, he was a leader. But I thought doubt. when I met him, he had the rights to sell that material. That was the, the technical grade, not the... Yeah. Chem we had the... Okay. The that, stuff was, was, oh, that was before a conversion grade, so he could he, he had the rights on the technical yeah, yeah. grade. Okay. Yep. I'm glad I've... My, my Probably confusing view, everyone. Now. <laughs> my view of history has been changed. You know what? I, I will say, though, people seem to like... There's a, there's a component of this audience that likes to know the history, so I always try to... If I got somebody like you who knows the history, and all our memories fade over time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when I get somebody who may be able to correct uh, misassumptions I've had, that's a, that's a bonus. But you mentioned competing with SQM, and that seemed to be the lens that you looked at. Greenbush was, had to be competitive with the converters who were competing with SQM. And it was a carbonate world. The first decade of the battery industry, there was very little hydroxide used except for as a precursor to electrolyte. Absolutely. So you were in a battle with a, a company who was selling a lithium chemical as a byproduct, which isn't a great place to be. <laughs> However, as we have seen, hydroxide has become more and more significant. And hard rock assets have a better a better route to make hydroxide. Tell me a little bit about the competitive balance and how you saw the converters transition from making carbonate to making hydroxide and what that meant. You could be more competitive in a hydroxide world than a carbonate world. I, I think that's that's true, that, that there's definitely an advantage in making hydroxide 
from, from minerals as opposed to making a carbonate from brine and then converting the carbonate. In the current environment, it, it probably the, the cost difference is not that significant. But I think there's two things that have changed. When we were first, the market was so small, SQM had the ability and they were happy to openly exercise that ability that they would put a lot of product in the market, push the price down and, and push the Chinese out of the market. The significant change is now is that they're not big enough to do that and the market has grown too big and the demand's too strong. So they can no longer do that. And now that the Chinese industry has really developed to the point where they've got lots of raw material coming out of Australia and they can compete very competitively on the hydroxide market, but then on the carbonate market, you know, they, they've really got a big step ahead of the rest of the world, I think. Could you have imagined in even 2010 or go back to 2008 that by 2019 there'd be five or six mines operating in Western Australia. Did that seem in the realm of possibility in your 2008 window? Oh, you know, no. I mean, the, the industry has changed. You know, for many years I'd be talking to investors and trying to convince them that there's a, there's a future for hard rock and it's not all brine. That just went on and on and on and there was always this hockey stick of demand that would come sometime in the future from EVs. I don't think it's, I think we're completely blindsided by how rapidly it has, has happened and, and how far progressed that it's gone. And, you know, certain areas have, have probably missed the opportunity. I think that the brines producers have probably underperformed and missed their opportunity. And the mining operations in concert with China have really taken advantage of the market. I have always talked about long term I saw a balance between there needed to be a balance between brine and hard rock just because there aren't enough great lithium assets in either category mm -hmm. to supply world demand. We have now seen that especially we're sitting here in Australia, they tend to view the world from the hard rock lens. But we have also seen the Chinese have a willingness to invest ahead of the curve that the Western players didn't have. Tesla originally was 100% dependent on brine-based hydroxide. And then I had a conversation with him after I left Live and said, you better, you better make your way to China. And now look what's happened with the uh, percentage of supply that comes from converters. What's made them successful, in your opinion? Uh, you know, there's no doubt that it's the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean... The, the big players in China are more than happy to take a big risk. They, they put everything on the line and they take the punt and they can execute really quickly. And they're visionary. They're, they're not probably held to the same account that the rest of us are to shareholders and all the rest of it. But ultimately, it's the entrepreneurship that, that's driven it. And they're incredible risk takers, but they've been very successful in doing it. We saw Tanchi decide to, to build the first big hydroxide conversion plant in uh, WA. And if I recall, that was supposed to start up four years ago. <laughs> Why has that been such a struggle? I mean, the, the technology for making hydroxide is pretty well understood. You know, it's, it's essentially quite basic. But to do it on large scale and, and that the qualities and the part per billion levels of impurities that are required isn't really done on any large scale. And it's, it's very, very difficult. 
So we've got that, and and as time's gone on, the spec is as they've been building, the specs got more and more difficult to meet. Um, so to to build a plan that the Tianchi team had as a vision is a challenge. It's what's necessary, and I think that they've learnt a lot, and that the future plans will progressively get easier and easier. I mean, everyone in the whole industry is is struggling on execution. To build a mine is not easy. To build a brine project is not easy. To build a a lithium hydroxide plant that's producing a, a product with you know a few part per billion iron is really really challenging it's something that we all have to work towards doing and we will get there but it just takes time so it's hard but they'll get there and the next one will be easier well as an aussie with a mining background uh, i've heard the old saw for years we're really good at digging stuff up but we're not really good at the value add and i hear that it just seems like it's almost embedded in the consciousness of, of people. So I, I never laid the, the, the problems on Tanchi so much. It's just the whole psychology that we don't do chemicals. And now you've got several players trying to do chemicals. Do you think that this is now the hour where chemicals are done all over the world? Why is that this thought that we just send stuff to China and they, they value at it and, you know, we dig it up? Well, I mean, it's just hard, you know, that the level of the, the requirements that are, are asked for by the market are, are challenging and they're moving and every, every customer has a different requirement. So when we started, we had a spec. You know, I can remember having huge arguments about whether we were double crystallised or triple crystallised and... I was arguing with triple crystallizers because I could see that the future was yeah. going to require higher qualities. It's true that Australia has not got a great history in, in downstream processing, there's no doubt about it. But this is not really a mining. The conversion process is, has almost no relationship to, to mining at all. It's really a chemicals industry and a specialist chemical industry and Australia doesn't have an have expertise in that I'm particular. I'm thrilled to hear you say that. It's a great passion of mine. It's, it's absolutely, it's no longer a commodity. It's a specialty chemical, and we need to be aware of that and treat it like that. Let's note that, listeners. I've got a mining guy here saying lithium is a specialty chemical. I say that all the time. Everybody, in the, especially the banking, the people writing in analyst reports, always want to make lithium a commodity. And... I always say perhaps someday it will be, but it's too immature in industry and there's not agreement on specs or anything else. So it's impossible, yeah. Again, you heard it here first. We're in a world now that you referenced SQM being too big at one point and it had a lot of power and then now it's now it's you know, it's just another player. A yep. big player, but just another player. We've all heard the rhetoric and the Reuters and the Bloombergs of the world, I say China dominates. Now we've got a globalization situation. Everybody wants to build mega factories, certainly the EU, North America. We've got geopolitical issues that put the West and China in not as best of friends. How do you see the next 10 years evolving between where assets get developed and trade-offs between, in a, in a $10,000 a ton lithium carbonate world, this would never happen, but we're, we're in a different place now. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do you see the lithium map in 2030 
Western Australia will still be the largest supplier in my estimation, but what are your thoughts? And then what are the other jurisdictions become significant? I think you really touch on on a really critical point for the future. There's no question that, that production out of Australia will continue to grow, but that's making a concentrate. You can't put concentrate into a battery. And at the moment, the vast majority of the conversion capacity is in China. So do we continue to go that route? And I don't know, you, you've probably worked it out, Joe, but how much of the, the lithium chemicals at some point goes through China? I mean, a, a huge amount of SQM's product still goes into China and gets refined and upgraded. And so that so much of the industry, one way or another, is going through China. So if, if the rest of the world wants an industry that can be a little bit independent of that, then we need to build specialist chemical conversion capacity outside of China and, and there are people doing that in Australia now but that's pretty small in comparison to what the world needs. Europe and the US have got a problem. If they can get concentrate but how are they going to get it into chemical? Well that's that's their issue and, and I know you have a similar thought. Well yeah I mean for the listeners benefit uh, I hadn't spoken with Peter in 11 years but we've been together at similar meetings across Australia the last couple of weeks. So he's heard ad nauseum what I think uh, about the situation. And we've had we've had presentations by some of the, the emerging players here. So it's been an interesting couple of weeks. But the question's still out there. We've heard some of the producers talk about not making, not selling cons, selling an intermediate, not necessarily a full lithium chemical, but something in between. What do you think of that? Look, I, I think it highlights the issue that the, the industry as we have it at the moment is really the same industry, the structure of it is the same as it was 10, 15 years ago. And it worked fine then, but it's broken now. It doesn't work now. So does it make sense to make concentrate, have a converter, make hydroxide, cut that all around the world and get it caking and all the issues that come because it's, it's unstable? Or does it make sense to make, for instance, a lithium sulphate and then take that... To, to the end users and they do their own polishing and make their own sources, you would say. I think that's really a big part of the discussion for the future that we need to, to resolve, but the industry needs to change. There's no question. It's not, it's not working. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. We are in a lithium supply shortage that could last well into the next decade. It is not going to fix itself. The industry needs to speed up the project development cycle. We need brine projects to come online in less than half the time it currently takes. From Argentina to Chile, from Ambre Muerto to the Atacama, Zolandes is the leading provider of technology and services for the production of lithium chemicals from brine resources, working to cut down the time and cost of production. To find out more, Go to Zelandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. We have an industry structure that's dominated still by four companies, Albemarle, SQM, Gangfin, and Tanchi. Over 60% of the market. When I was here three years ago, they had over 70. So their share is declining. But the existing five and six added up make a weak fifth. So we don't. We haven't had anybody really step up at this point. There's a lot of big mining companies in the world that aren't involved in lithium. 
There's energy companies trying to green up their portfolio that haven't stepped up yet. Do you have any thoughts on big players getting in and taking out a lithium player and then because of having massive capital are able to to leverage that? Or do you see the industry growing more organically? Look, I'm... I was on record as saying in 2019 there's a terrific opportunity here. You know, there was a, some of the big players should have bought out some of the existing players because we need balance sheet strength, we need patient capital because it takes a long time to build conversion capacity. Very difficult when you're a single asset player to say, well, you know, we're spending a billion dollars and be happy, guys, in five years you'll get some revenue from it. You know, it's very difficult. So it does require some of these big people to, with strong balance sheets and big cash flows to come in. They are looking at it, you know, everywhere they're looking at it. They're all trying to find an angle to, to, to get in, and I'm sure that will happen. How soon do you think uh, we have a, a maturation? Do you think it's a decade? Do you think it's two decades? We, we've talked offline about the fact that this industry needs to develop talent seems the only way you develop talents by making big mistakes on projects, <laughs> which slows everything down. In a world where the hockey stick has finally come, we've had the false starts on the EV demand hockey stick. Now there's real pressure on this industry to step up. And although a lot of the analysts think on an Excel spreadsheet, expansions are easy, we find the reality is tough. What's it look like in 2030 is it or is it going to take till 2040 well I, I think it's I think we have to make it by 2030 that we don't have any choice um, if if we want to supply the industry and be part of the future decarbonisation we have to sort this out we need to get some leadership out there and we need to make it happen and and I think you know once the momentum gets there it will happen but it's a hard road it's a lot more difficult to build an industry than it is to to build a mine and to start, you know, to, to find a spodumene project and start a mine. That's relatively known ground. But to build an industry that's suitable for the future is going to be more challenging, but we have to do it. How do you see the current geopolitical environment? China's very willing to invest in on any continent quickly. We, we've seen in recent days the Canadians tell the Chinese they have to divest of some... Canadian-owned assets, and this gets really complicated because sometimes it's a TSX company with assets in Argentina or Chile or somewhere else. Do you think cooler heads will prevail, or do you think this geopolitical situation we're in is going to be a, a significant barrier? Oh, uh, look, my. Maybe I've spent 50 or 60 trips to China and I've got terrific respect for, for the people there and I'm devastatingly disappointed that the way things have gone. You know, it, it's, it's really a hindrance to the development industry and it's, it's bad for us all that the geopolitical factors have come in, but they are. There's no doubt that China's a different place and there's a whole lot of different reactions to it. I think we just have to live with that. It, it's changing. I think we end up with two, two markets... China will, is big enough that it'll do its own thing. But the rest of the world will have to work out how to, to manage without the input from China, I think. Um, I think that's just the way it's, it's going. 
do you think that China is blessed with some great resources in other metals? Unfortunately, their lithium resources <laughs> aren't very good, whether it's brine, whether it's hard rock. And, and now we're hearing a, you have a, a certain bank, which will go unnamed, but everybody knows who I'm talking about, has said lapidolite's going to be the game changer. And then in 2025, there'll be over 300,000 tons of lithium chemical LCE coming from lapidolite. We well, had a closer, you were an advisor to Tianchi. You know Gangfen, you know the other players. They know where the lapidolite is. They never developed it. In, in fact, most of these companies have ongoing development projects and multi-continents. Yet, price is high enough <laughs> to justify just about anything. Mm. But the real debate now seems to be, how quickly can you bring lapidolite on? You're a mining guy. You know where the you, you know about this. What? Why is lapidolite mediocre versus spodumene or even petalite, I guess? And what's your take on how fast China can, can make battery quality material out of those resources? I can honestly say I'm no expert on this, but what I can say is that for many years, the Chinese market had one supplier, Talazin, and when the prices were a little bit challenging, 100% of the margin went to the mine and 0% went to the converters. They had enormous incentive at that point to develop anything else they could to, to take away our advantage with, with marketing. And they didn't do it. They couldn't do it. I think it's just difficult. So if, if it was possible and practical and easy, they would have already done it years ago. It's, so my view is that there's plenty of spodumene in the world. They're finding more and more in Australia and in elsewhere in the world, in, in Brazil and in Canada and places. That's where the focus will be. You know, I, I'm not threatened by what they'll, what they'll do with these other projects in China. Amen. I'm, I'm, we seem to be in agreement on... And we haven't discussed things. this in advance, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so part of... You're, by design not well known you've you've done a great job of keeping a low profile people like me know how important you are to the industry but uh i think my listeners many of my listeners will not have heard of you which is 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 by your own choosing mm -hmm. this guy does not tweet <laughs> <laughs> so and you've known some of the big players advising tanchi and tanchi made a an acquisition of a portion of SQM, a significant piece of SQM. Having had a ringside seat to that, how did you see the interplay between the Chileans and the Chinese? And did you feel that um, Tianxi just had a hope that they would, with the stake they took, get access to SQM's material? Or it was always stated as it's just, it's just a good investment, but it, it didn't prove to be a good investment. It, it actually caused a restructure of, of their ownership of Greenbushes in the end. But what, what were your views on what was going on there? Oh, so it's probably you know, not that appropriate that I go into to too much of that, but there's no doubt that 
SQM's assets are fantastic. I mean, they've got a great business. You know, they don't just have the lithium. The other parts of the business are terrific. So I think TNG saw that as a, as a good opportunity. Interestingly enough, the, the, the Chilean and the, um, the Chinese cultures are not that different. So, in fact, culturally, it actually works quite well. Um, but I, I guess we'll leave it to see what they want to say about what, <laughs> what their reasons yeah, are. I, yeah, I didn't think I was going to be able to draw too much out on that On that, Make topic. no mistake, it's a great business. Yeah, I, I've been invested in SQM most of the time since they had ADRs. I've kind of played the cycle. So I'm... As much as I will talk about things I think they could have done better, that's just, I think there have been a lot of missed lithium opportunities across the board, and it just tends to be an uh, editorial comment. But the other point in that discussion is that you know the players, you have personal relationships, and yet you disappeared for a brief time, and now you have decided to join the board of a junior lithium company. Tell us about your decision. What led you to decide that you would bring your expertise to Latin resources? Well, it, I guess that the relationship, once Vivian Wu left Tianchi, then that, that role was finished. And um, at that point, I discovered that golf wasn't enough to fill my week. <laughs> And my play didn't really make it worthwhile. But look, I still love the industry. I love being involved. Um, had chats to lots of people. Um, and then Chris come and talk to me about Latin resources. And if I, if I look at what interests me, it's, it's a resource. Um, it's, the, it's the opportunity. It's the value add and it's the people that are in the business that, 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 are, that are interest me. And, and we've already talked about the value of people that... that to add to organisations. But when Chris showed me the project that he had and, and the opportunity that that resource could grow substantially, it speeds the market. You know, I think that the opportunity now is to get into the market as quickly as possible and make the advantage of, of the, the higher prices. So its ability to grow, its ability to um, access the market relatively quickly, the team that they've got are terrific. Even when it comes down to some of the mineralogy, it looks very prospective in terms of making a really high-quality product that the, the end users will value in the future. All of those things, I guess, made a compelling argument to, to dip my toe back into to the, to the public world, I guess. Well, Brazil is a historic lithium producer on a small scale. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. In, in, the, in the hard rock, they've had an asset and miniaturized for... For decades, I spent time in the 90s going down there because we were trying to get, we had to get a license every time we sold lithium in there. And uh, so I, I had met the, the players at the time who their optical sorter was people looking at it by hand <laughs> and separating it. But now you've got Sigma, which is on the verge of producing. You got AMG down there. I mean, Brazil really has the, potential to become people don't think about south american hard rock but that's kind of where we are so if we had had this discussion four years ago you say brazil it's not going to be competitive but in the world we're in now it looks like brazil can be a real player and as you alluded to the resource that you're looking at looks like it it has the potential to be quite significant Uh, i think 
couple of the real things that have changed things in recent time is clearly the price. And it's not that long ago that we were selling concentrate for 250 bucks a tonne. At that point, only greenbushes is economic. That's changed. It's permanently changed. It cannot go back to that because the, the market can't sustain a price. So that means projects in the, in the low 1% grade is economic. You overlay that with a jurisdiction that means that's supportive. So you can get a permit, as, as we've discussed, it's quite difficult in places like the US to get a permit to do anything. And the other thing that we obviously face is the fact that the US has got no idea where it's going to get a supply. So the obvious suppliers are countries like Brazil and Canada. So that's a great opportunity as we talk about this restructured industry going forward, that where's the raw material going to come from? In my view, it comes from Canada and, and Brazil. Well, Chris Reed uh, on this podcast a couple of times talked about peak WA being 1.5 million tons of LCE. And if you do the math, that's great, but it's, WA is going to need help. Plus, Brazil seemingly could be a supplier to the U.S. for sure, but also Europe, because Europe is probably going to be worse at bringing on any kind of resource uh, than North America. Uh, we've just seen protests. We saw what happened with Rio and Serbia. So, yeah, I think, I think you're well-positioned. I think the industry is lucky to have you back. Well, thank you, Joe. You're very generous. <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to touch on that I did not ask you about? I think some of the comments that, you know, that where, where do we think pricing is going to go? Now, I'm not as game to talk about pricing the, the same as you are, but I, I think the fundamentals are still very much the case that demand is growing. There's no obvious change in technology that, that's going to, to take away the demand for lithium. Supply is always slower to come on than people think. So I think the fundamentals of your argument that prices are higher longer is strong. How long, how high, who knows? We're all guessing. We're all guessing. <laughs> and inevitably, if you're contrarian and said, did the opposite to what I would say, you'd probably win. I don't know, but the, the fundamentals are there for a strong industry going forward. And uh, I think we've got a bright future. All right. We'll leave it there, except we end every podcast with a few rapid-fire questions. Rapid-fire questions. Favourite book? Keep going. <laughs> Favorite movie? <laughs> I'm a great, keen Casablanca man. I have to say. First time that's been the the answer to that question. If you could be a world class performer in any endeavor, what would it be? Wouldn't it be nice to be a good golfer? Yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I think we can we can agree on that. <laughs> if you could have dinner. With anyone who ever lived, obviously in sentient form, we're not going to have you have dinner with a corpse. Who would you pick today? You can you you can bring look, anybody back. Look, I would have loved to have have sat down and had a chat with Nelson Mandela. And that's been an answer before. It's it's interesting. He 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 comes up pretty often. That's it's he. He's an amazing man and, and uh, really interesting to understand better how you could be locked up for 20-something years and come out and be such an amazing man. But Okay. Peter Oliver, thank you very much for being my guest today. Thank you, Joe. That was great. And there you have it. I feel extremely fortunate that I was able to reconnect with Peter while in Australia
it will not be 10 years before we speak again. It, it won't be 10 months. Peter's a very valuable asset to the lithium industry. I was happy to see him return after a brief hiatus. I was particularly pleased to see him get involved with a junior like Latin Resources. He will be very helpful in getting them where they're trying to go. Brazil has a long history of lithium production with the new supply and demand dynamic and prices where they are, Brazil will become a significant supplier, particularly to the North American and potentially European markets. Sigma is poised to start production. You also have AMG. And with Latin developing a resource, you will have three potentially significant sources of lithium outside of Australia that are more logically cited to the North American and European markets. I went to Australia to speak at three events and meet as many lithium players as I could. I had only planned to do one podcast, and that was episode 148 with Cam Henry and John Young. The opportunity presented itself to do Episode 147 with J.P. Vargas of Galan. I, of course, took that and then was, as I said before, very, very pleased to be able to bring you one of the major figures in the history of the industry, that being Peter Oliver. I have done a write-up of my trip to Australia. You can find it on the Global Lithium website, globallithium.net backslash articles or on my LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening.